Hi, this is Alana Terry, and you are listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. I'm really glad you joined us for Season 4. We are streaming daily chapters from full-length Christian fiction audiobooks just for you. And the sponsor for this season of the Unabridged Podcast is Blessing on the Run, which is also the audiobook you're going to listen to. So if you would like to listen to the entire audiobook at once, you can go to alanaterry.com slash blessing to get your free audiobook copy, or you can tune in right now for today's chapter of Blessing on the Run. Chapter 10 I wake up to the sound of pots clanging in the kitchen. I'm sorry, dear, Mom says. I was trying to let you sleep. I know it's been a hard night for you. I glance around, wondering what I'm doing curled up under piles of quilts on the couch. Was Tyson snoring too loud, she asks. That's what it was. Yeah, I hope you don't mind me coming out here. Of course not, love. You're welcome anywhere, just like this was your own home. Mom winces when she says the words, and I wonder if she's thinking about the apartment and ex-fiancé I left behind last night. Is Tyson up yet? I ask, wondering if he'll be disappointed if my boyfriend misses out on our Christmas traditions. Part of me hopes Damien will be stubborn enough to show up here anyway, but I'm certainly not going to call or text and beg him to come. I wasn't the one acting like a baby last night. He's still asleep, Mom tells me, glancing down the hall toward the back room where I tried to snuggle up last night with my son. It's only quarter to eight. Man, I need more sleep. Got any coffee? I ask. Mom pours a mug and dumps in three spoonfuls of sugar and about a quarter cup of half and half. If she's trying to give me diabetes and heart disease before I hit 40, she's going at it the right way. Oh, I should have asked if you wanted eggnog instead of creamer. Mom frowns at the mug in her hand. Want me to dump this out and start over? Eggnog in my coffee? I don't even like the stuff plain. I certainly wouldn't mix it in with anything else, especially not something as important as my first caffeine injection of the day. I reach out for the mug she's holding. This will be fine. Five minutes later, I feel almost human, almost ready to be happy and joyful this Christmas morning, if only for Tyson's sake and nothing else. But there's more to it than that. This is my chance to prove, to myself, to my son, and to my mom and dad, that I can be happy without Damien. I'm starting to wonder if he was just holding me back. I realize for the first time I haven't thought about Jared or his threats since some point last night when I finally came out of the bedroom to toss and turn on the couch. Then when I woke up, I spent a full ten or twelve waking minutes not remembering him at all. Probably some kind of record. A Christmas miracle. I hear the toilet flush and feel inexplicably giddy, like I'm still a little girl listening to the sounds of her father waking up on Christmas morning. I'm hugging Dad before he even steps into the living room. Merry Christmas. I kiss his cheek, which is slightly stubbly this early in the day before he's shaved. 
Without his glasses, he looks older for some reason. The slight gray around his temples appears more pronounced. I kiss him one more time. How you doing? Good, he answers and glances around the room. Where's Tyson? Still in bed, I tell him. You can go wake him up. He had a lot of cookies last night. I'm surprised you guys managed to get him to sleep when you did. It was no problem, Mom says as Dad walks down the hall in a tired stupor. He opens the door to my son's room and Mom continues. Soon as the last guests left, he just crashed, went to his room and we didn't hear a peep from him since. Tyson, where you at, boy? Dad calls, and Mom and I both glance up at each other. I walk down the hall. I don't run. I walk. Tyson, Dad shouts again, and my chest feels like someone's reached in and started squeezing off the blood to my heart. Dad's out of the room and opening the other doors down the hall. Did he go upstairs? Mom's face is pale, which is saying a lot given how light she is to start with. I'll go check. Her voice cracks just once. Tyson, I call. Come on, bud. I make myself sound cheerful so he'll want to come out of whatever hiding place he's found. It's Christmas morning. Don't you want to see what Santa put in your stocking? I don't care that my dad hates the commercialized Santa Claus of childhood fantasy and refuses to entertain such anti-Christian traditions in his home. I don't even care that my voice is now full of unmasked panic. Tyson? A minute later, Mom comes down the stairs, shaking her head. She's trying to look calm, but she has never once been able to tell a lie for as long as I have known her. Think he's hiding? she asks, but the fear that's settled in the base of my gut is mirrored in her face. Dad opens the front door, calls for my son. We all go to the garage, look in all the corners and even in the car. Mom slips on her boots and fuzzy pink bathrobe and checks the backyard. We call him dozens of times, hundreds of times, but there's no answer. My son has disappeared. Chapter 11 Mom sets plates of food on the table in front of the police officer and me, but I have no appetite. Detective Driscoll drinks black coffee from one of Mom's cute handmade snowman mugs. I think it's the one I colored my first Christmas living with my parents, although I couldn't guarantee it. Is there anyone your son plays with in the area? Friends in the neighborhood, the detective asks. I glance at Mom, who would know better than I would since she babysits him when he's not at preschool, or with Damien's mom. No, sir. There's not too many young families in the cul-de-sac anymore, I'm afraid to say. The Richardsons, they had four children, bright kids, very polite, too. But their dad got a new job that was closer to his folks, if I remember right. Any other ideas where he might be? Driscoll takes a noisy sip of coffee. Let's see. Mom runs her hands over her braided hair. I think he was going to Michigan. Or was it Montana? Detective Driscoll and I stare at Mom like she's just suggested my son is on a journey to the center of the solar system, 
until Dad exclaims, Not the Richardson's woman, he's asking about Tyson. Mom glances at the detective and apologizes sheepishly. I roll my eyes and finally decide to stop letting some stranger run this meeting. Listen, I know my son. There's nowhere he would have wanted to be on Christmas morning besides here, unless... I stop myself, try to remember all that Mom and I talked about last night after I stormed away from Damien. I thought Tyson was asleep. Could he have been listening in on our conversation? Still, even if he knew Damien wouldn't be joining us for Christmas, even if he wanted to be with Damien instead of us... My boyfriend and I got into a fight last night, I tell the detective. I'm sure he's used to hearing secrets far darker and dirtier than this, but I still hate to talk to him about something that probably isn't any of his business. You did? Dad interrupts. What about? Did he hurt you? I'm fine. I insist, and focus my attention back on Drisclay. But I left home and spent the night here and told him not to bother to come over this morning for Christmas. In my mind, I'm processing everything I've ever known about Damien. He's not a dangerous man. He was angry last night, but he wouldn't do anything to hurt my child, would he? Detective Drisclay has his pencil poised over his notebook. Address. As soon as I tell him, there's a minor whirlwind of activity. Drisclay radios the information in and asks one of his men to check on Damien to see if my son is with him, even though there's no way Tyson could have gotten there on his own. Dad asks what in the world Damien and I had to fight about the same night we got engaged. At this point, Drisclay demands to know exactly when I planned to tell him that Damien was my fiancé and not just my boyfriend, and Mom's acting like she's afraid we're all in danger of disappearing into thin air if we don't eat something. Meanwhile, I'm thinking that the police better find my son perfectly safe and unharmed at Damien's house— and Damien better make sure he gets himself a really good lawyer and an even better bodyguard, because if he's done anything to put my son in harm's way, I swear I'm going to kill him. Chapter 12 The next ten minutes pass with torturous slowness while we wait to hear if Drisclay's men have found Tyson with my boyfriend— I have no idea why we aren't all piling into his squad car to look ourselves, but then again, if I were Drisclay and had control over a bunch of officers who had to do my dirty work for me, maybe I'd stay in on this cold Christmas morning, too. Of course, whatever I know about police proceedings, it's because I've watched a few action movies and eventually ended up on the wrong side of the law. I'm not a felon anymore, by the way. I think I already mentioned how Dad and a few others took my case and finally got that off my record. But those were some tough years, let me tell you. Even out of prison, do you know how hard life is for a woman who's spent her life enslaved to a pimp and now has a record for being an accessory to the prostitution of minors? Seriously, if you were a business owner, is that the kind of employee you would hire? I wouldn't have even hired myself. 
because even when I realized exactly what kind of person Jared was, exactly what he was doing to me and those other girls, some of them just as young as I'd been when I first met him and fell victim to his charm, I still went back to him, more than once. Which is why I worry so much about Tyson. If I kept making the same mistakes far into my twenties, how can I expect my son to ever learn anything when he's only five? How can I get him through twelve years of public education if he can't even keep from getting kicked out of preschool? Of course, none of this matters as long as he's still missing. What's taking those cops so long to get back to us with some information? When should we hear something? It's probably been less than two minutes since I last asked, but this silence is going to drive me insane. Drisclay doesn't answer, just takes a loud sip of coffee, which by now is probably cold. Mom's sitting by my side, rubbing my back and stroking my arm as if I were a little lost kitten she brought in from a rainstorm. I don't want her sympathy. Sympathy implies that something bad has happened, but we don't know that yet. Maybe this is all some sort of prank. I think about a joke my dad told me in church once, since that man literally can't begin a sermon with anything other than a funny story or corny Bible riddle. This one starts with a nurse who telephones the on-call doctor to let her know that there's an emergency at the hospital. Instead of getting hold of the physician, she finds herself talking to her four-year-old son. "'Is your mommy there?' she asks, and the little boy responds in a quiet voice, "'Yes, but she can't talk right now.' "'This is really important,' says the nurse. "'Could you go get her for me?' "'Sorry,' the little boy whispers. "'That would be impossible.' Feeling put out, the nurse sighs. "'Well, is your dad there?' Yes, the boy answers, but he can't come to the phone either. Why not? He's busy talking to the policemen. Thinking that the little boy might be in trouble, which could also explain why he's been whispering, the nurse asks, Is everything all right over there? No. The boy is talking so quietly, she can hardly make out his words. Mom's crying, and the policemen are searching everywhere. Hearing something loud in the background, the nurse asks, What's that noise? That's the helicopter. They've got their bright lights on and are flying around the whole neighborhood. By now, the nurse is even more alarmed. Who are they looking for? The little boy lets out a giggle. He, <laughs> me? I can't for the life of me remember what that story had to do with Dad's sermon but I'm going back and forth between hoping this whole incident is Tyson's idea of a bad Christmas prank and imagining the ways I'm going to kill him if it is. Driscoll gets a buzz on his radio. It's all in police talk, and even though I understand the individual words, I have no idea what the officer on the other end is saying. I can tell, though, from Driscoll's face that it's not good news. He barks out a quick order, then looks at me and shakes his head. No sign of him there. I've got one of my men questioning your boyfriend now, but my gut tells me it's a dead end, and unless we're talking about that taco truck outside the courthouse, my gut very rarely lets me down. 
I have no idea if this is Driscoll's way of trying to lighten the mood. If it is, you wouldn't know it from his features, which are about as serious as what you'd see on a baseball umpire, or one of those guards in those tall fuzzy hats standing in front of the Queen of England's palace. He wouldn't have wandered off on Christmas morning without telling us, Mom says, and I know she's right. Tyson's a pain in the butt, but he wouldn't risk skipping out on Christmas presents and stocking stuffers just to play a joke. Dad lays a heavy hand on my shoulder. Is this something you think Damien might be involved in? I shake my head. Angry as we might get at each other, as stupid as our fight was last night, Damien would never hurt my son. It would take a special sort of monster who would resort to injuring a little kid. A special sort of monster just like the kind who would threaten to kill one of his underage girls if I didn't fix her makeup and prepare her for the work she was expected to do, who promised to burn my parents' house down if I didn't help him get into the bank where I work. Do you know anyone else who could have done something like this? Mom winces when she asks the question, and I know how much it pains her to admit that there might be some sort of foul play involved in Tyson's disappearance. Everyone's looking at me now, even the detective with his perfectly expressionless features. I don't want to have to say what I'm about to say, especially not with my parents listening in. Mom will get worried and turn weepy. Dad will be angry, not at me, but at the memory of the felon who stole so much of his daughter's childhood. The detective, if he's anything like the other cops I talked to after Jared's arrest, will probably find a way to shift the blame onto me. But if that's what it's going to take to get my son back, so be it. Bring it on. I take a deep breath. The air in my parents' dining room turns heavy. There is someone who may have been involved, I confess. It's physically painful to get the words out. His name's Jared, old ex-boyfriend of mine. I stare around the table. Am I going to say it? Yes, I am. It could be important to this investigation. Knowing full well what kind of drama is about to unfold, I take a deep breath, avoid my parents' eyes, and add, He's Tyson's father. Alana Terry here. I hope you enjoyed today's installment of Blessing on the Run. Please don't forget that you can listen to the entire audiobook of Blessing on the Run when you purchase it from Audible or wherever it is that you like to listen to digital audiobooks, or you can go to alanaterry.com blessing to download your free copy. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you soon.